So we all have to keep our minds on Christ's kingdom and on the resurrection because, brethren, lots of things are happening. Before I go on, I would like to certainly thank Mr. Pyle for the very fine sermonette, very thoughtful, and I think we do need to really never forget the first commandment. Often we do that. We talk about the commandments to love each other, and the world says, oh, just try to be good and practice the golden rule. You know, you talk to people, that's all they seem to think about. But the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being. God does love us. He's concerned for us. God rebukes and chastens every son He loves, though, in love. And Jesus Christ corrected people when they were wrong, but He did it in love. But brethren, God is beginning to intervene powerfully in world affairs, and I think a lot of us realize that. But I think a lot of our brethren, I'm talking to you here and the brethren around the world, still don't really get that. And we're within days of having a mandatory water rationing right here. Some of you have heard that perhaps over the radio. They're talking about it. Counties all around here already have mandatory. How many of you are living in a county where you already have it? Look at the hands, the rest of you. About a fourth of the church already is in water rationing. We're going to have it right here in Mecklenburg County if we don't get some rain soon. And no real rain is prophesied or predicted yet. They're talking about a few showers, but not rain. We had a little shower a couple nights ago, but not much. So our nation is reeling, in a sense, from drought on one hand, affecting about three-fourths of the nation, really bad drought, and about one-fourth of the nation recently, or maybe half, it depends on how you figure these numbers I'm generalizing, is getting floods. And God talks about alternating drought and flood, which I will be reading you as we go into the sermon. But you need to understand that. The creed, this is not just global warning. This is not Al Gore. This is what God said thousands of years ago. And he described it specifically what's going to happen. And it is beginning to happen here. And if we don't get a lot of rain, we're going to have mandatory water rationing. And later we're going to have to not just ration water for our lawns, but water for what we drink and everything else. And we need to realize that. Last night... On the news, they talked about, and some of you saw that, uh, no doubt, on the television news, how the price of wheat's going up and up and up, and many other grain products, because we're selling millions of tons of wheat to, wheat to the Chinese and to the, even the Egyptians, of all things, and they're ordering, and sometimes they order, of course, uh, they, they get these uh, orders in advance uh, through the futures markets, and they're already locked in, and we've got to send it to them. The time may come when we're already locked in to give them grain, and we don't even have grain ourselves. That time may be coming a lot sooner than many of our brethren realize. And we do need to take the prophecies seriously. We happen to be the only church on earth, that is, the descended churches of Mr. Armstrong, who understand prophecy. And we ourselves, in this church, are preaching those prophecies more powerfully and more specifically. And I think all of us understand that. Over in Ohio... I read it in two or three newspapers, heard it on the radio. You probably did, too, over and around Finley, Ohio, and other areas. They've recently had the worst floods in about 100 years. So it's not some everyday occurrence. Alternating drought and floods. So we need to understand these predicted events and prophesied events. For we specifically know what's going to happen. Others generalize. Billy Graham's a nice man. He's lying up there and very close to death, and I think he meant very well. But, you know, he talks about love Jesus. He very seldom talks about prophecy. I've heard him two or three times mentioned. If he talks about it, he says Christ is coming back someday. 
and Gerald Falwell and all these other peoples. He will come back someday somehow, but they don't know the details. Why don't they know the details? Because God has not called them. It's not that they're evil people. God has not called them yet. So that does make us better than them. It just means God has called out a little flock. And we do understand, and we do have the responsibility to warn our people. How can the, we know that dozens of prophecies apply specifically to us? Now, some of your older brethren understand this, but it's good to review it. A lot of you don't know, who've been around a while. I've talked to people and realized that. And thousands of our newer brethren don't understand. And young people growing up at the church don't understand how they could prove it. So they get confused and they leave the church or they don't take it seriously or whatever. How can we know that these prophecies apply to us? I'm going through the book of Amos and give some highlights, but I'm going to go through other scriptures in connection with Amos. And I want to sort of show you briefly, I wish I had a two-hour sermon like we used to have, Mr. Raymond Manair and Mr. Waterhouse and I used to be the long-range preachers. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Waterhouse kept it up and never quit, <laughs> some of you know, and went even longer than we did. But at any rate, uh, we've cut the services back. We don't have as much time to go through all these details. But I want to show how important the identity of Israel is, because without understanding that, brethren, you cannot understand about 90% of end-time prophecy. About 90%, unless you understand the identity of the so-called lost ten tribes of Israel. Another key thing you need to understand is duality. How prophecies that applied partly back then apply today at the time of the end and they apply to us. Thirdly, you need to understand the timing of prophecy and how important that is. So I'll comment on these things. I can't go through them all thoroughly. Turn, if you would, first of all, to Luke, Luke chapter 21, brethren. That's our basic prophecy uh, that you've all read so many times, the Olivet Prophecy mentioned here and in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. He goes through the basic things that Matthew does about war and false prophets and earthquakes in various places, famine, pestilences in verse uh, 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 11, and fearful sights or terrors, it can be translated, terrorism, mentioned in verse 11, in the Greek, it mentions, and then his commentaries mention this could be translated terrors and great signs from heaven. And he goes on with the other things we normally cover. And he talks about Jerusalem finally being conquered again. Notice in verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, moon, and in the stars, and on earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Now that literally happened in a really big way during the terrible Southeast Asian problem, as you know, that terrible tsunami out there that took thousands of lives. They still don't know if it was a quarter of a million or a third of a million. They were never able to count all those bodies, but around a quarter of a million human beings. That's a lot of folks. The sea and waves roaring. It happened to some extent during Katrina, during the four hurricanes that went through Florida a couple of years ago. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth of the powers of the heaven was shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, he didn't say when they end, that's too late. But when they begin to happen, we've got to think about it. We've got to understand it. But we also should not be discouraged, brethren. And you brethren around the world, don't be discouraged. Be thankful God has revealed these things to you. When they begin to happen, he says, look up. 
Don't be scared to death and look down and go hide. Look up because and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Finally, Christ is coming. Finally, the resurrected people are going to come up and the people we've known and loved who have died are going to be here again and we will see them. And he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree when it's budding. You know that summer is near. So likewise, when you see these things happening, know, don't be in doubt, know that the kingdom of God is near. And I don't mean one thing. A lot of you know, brethren, that I said for years it's not quite yet. And I even wrote a letter to the ministry three years before 1972, which Mr. Armstrong allowed me to do, saying we might have many more years yet. And I preached and one of my Los Angeles number one brethren gave me the notes of his sermon, where in that sermon I said we might have 20 or 30 years beyond that time. Well, we're even beyond 20 or 30 years beyond that time now, and it hasn't happened yet. But I was showing we could have more time. So I've not been trying to rush things, and I'm not saying now. Some of you know that people back during the 1800s, they saw certain weather upsets, and they thought Christ was going to come in 1843. It didn't happen. They moved it to 1844. And they called that the great disappointment and so on. And then they had people up in New England thought about falling stars. Oh, falling stars, the Bible says. They thought Christ was coming back in the 1870s. And the Jehovah Witnesses thought the First World War was the Great Tribulation. And they set the date, I think it was 1917 or 18, that that was the end of the 6,000 years and Christ was going to come then. That didn't happen. What's the problem with that? They, oh, well, these religious people have all these crazy dates. They're always wrong. Well, the main thing is not that they're stupid or evil, but God has not called them yet. He has not called them yet. God says back in Psalm 119, verse 172, a good understanding have they that do His commandments. They did not keep God's commandments. God did not give them a good understanding. And part of that understanding is they're not one sign... You don't look for two signs. You look for a whole panorama of prophetic events that God describes. When they all begin to come to pass, or many of them, then you know it's quite near. That's why I wrote our booklet, as you know, 14 signs, not two or five, 14 signs. And I could have made it 21 and gone, well, that's not some sacred number, but it was the major ones. And I like to stick with sevens. I think that's kind of good. <laughs> seven is the perfect number, so two times seven is 14. But at any rate, look for a lot of these signs. When these things, plural, begin to happen, then you know the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. They're all going to be fulfilled. He didn't say, well, I'm going to forget to do some of them and, and, and you have to apologize about me later. You never need to apologize about God. And we better understand that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. A lot of people have these wild parties and carry on. Drunkenness. Today kids drink and drink and drink and drink. And other people do too, older people at times. And then they get into drugs, which is not mentioned here, but the same thing that blacks out your mind. And the cares of this life. That's the thing most of us get into, the cares of this life. We just sort of bog down on the everyday and time goes on and we're not stirred by what's happening in world events and by the need to prepare for God's kingdom. 
The cares of this life and that day will come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare. And as I've explained, my dad back in high school, he had a muskrat trap line, and he would go out north of town on Turkey Creek and set these little traps, and the little muskrats would come along to get some, you know, like a rat trap, and get some food, and bang, that trap just snapped before the animal knows what's going to happen. Of course, that's not good today. The animal rights people, and it's probably what they're partly right on all that. That was not good, but he didn't understand that, and he sold the muskrat hides, you know, furs, and so on. That was part of his way to pay his way through college, I guess. But at any rate, a trap is set, and a rat comes along and bites the cheese, and his eyes are built, and snap, it's too late! You can't decide something then. It's going to happen so quickly when it finally does happen. A lot of people are not going to be ready. Like a snare... It's going to come on those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always. He tells us to watch. Be alert. Have your mind about you. Think about world news. Think about what's going on. How is this fulfilling the prophecies that you read in your Bible? Pray always, then. Ask God constantly for for humility, for repentance, for God's Holy Spirit that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So God tells us to be very concerned about prophecy and watch. Now, brethren, again, I don't remotely have time to cover these subjects, but I want to refer to them. Remember the basic prophecies in Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and uh, back in uh, 17 and Genesis uh, 22 and 35, all talking about Israel and how the descendants of Abraham coming down through Isaac and Jacob were to become a great people, a great nation, and a great company of nations. And they were to inherit the gates of their enemies. So they're at the time of the end. Then you read Genesis 49, Genesis chapter 49. And remember how Jacob blessed his sons and showed that they were to be the great peoples of the earth. And it gives just one little verse for, you know, whatever, Naphtali or these other little nations, the other nations of Israel. And all of it suddenly comes to Joseph in the middle of chapter 49. And it sounds like, God bless America, from sea to shining sea, the blessings of your father shall be greater than those of your ancestors under the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. And it goes on, you'll be great here and you'll be powerful there. The riches of the deep and the riches of the heavens and everything. Blessed and blessed and blessed at the time of the end. And that's the way we've been. But then so many other prophecies show once you've been blessed like that, He's going to take away these blessings. So all of you brethren, please, your brethren hearing this later on the tape around the world, please get out and reread Mr. O'Gwen's booklet on the United States and Britain and prophecy. And I specifically asked Mr. O'Gwen to make it briefer. He could have made that more thorough, but I know that most people don't read a great, long, huge, involved thing today. And so we have extra information, and we're talking about sending out an addendum, you know, for those who are interested in deeper information or a follow-through booklet with more information on that and additional information on the other tribes. Where is Zebulun? Where is Naphtali? Where is Gad, Asher, and so on? And that'll be, but that's so important to understand our national identity. When you understand that the United States and the descendants of Manasseh and the British descended peoples 
mainly we're getting many millions of Gentiles in among us, and some of you here are Gentile, of course, too, but you know what I mean. The basic Anglo-Saxon people that built Britain and built America in the first place were Anglo-Saxon Celtic people. Look at a picture of Abraham. I mean, not Abraham. I've talked about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe and the others. They were all those people, and God used them to start this nation. And when you find out who they are, we are Manasseh, and Britain is Ephraim, the sons of Joseph, the house of Joseph, which is part of the house of Israel. So you need to understand that, and that's so important. Then you need to understand duality. The Bible's filled with duality, and I could preach a whole sermon on that sometime, and perhaps should, but God talks about the first Adam, and then the second Adam was Jesus Christ. Christ is the second Adam. The first Adam was of the dust. And then, of course, the second Adam was Jesus Christ. And, of course, you have all kinds of duality through the Bible. You have the twelve patriarchs of ancient Israel, and you have, uh, you have the twelve apostles in the New Testament. And just one thing after the other, all the way through the Bible that God has like that. But in prophecy, specifically, you will have quite often an early fulfillment that took place back then, hundreds or thousands of years ago. But then as you read on, you can see God obviously has in mind, because He will mention specific things about it that could not mean back then, but have to mean that the ultimate fulfillment is today, has already been, or is being, or will be, probably in the next 10 to 25 years, fulfilled now in our day, at the time of the end. And that's another very important thing to understand. Let's turn at this point to Luke, if you would. Luke, brethren, uh, chapter 4. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. And uh, some of you taking the class will see I borrowed from my class on this one because it got my mind on it. going through the harmony of the Gospels the other day in the freshman class got my mind on this and in my personal study I'd been rereading the book of Amos and other things I decided to put it all together here for you. Luke 4 you find Jesus began His ministry in the synagogue here and it says in verse 14 then Jesus returned after His temptation in the power of the Spirit to Galilee And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So, verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, it was Jesus' custom to keep the Jewish Sabbath, which is not the Jewish Sabbath, but you know what I mean, God's Sabbath, the seventh day. He always did that. As his custom was, were to follow Christ's example. He set an example that we should follow in his steps. As his custom was... He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Okay, he's reading Isaiah now. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops. What's wrong? Well, some nice Protestants who don't believe the Bible or some atheists say, well, look, Jesus is not fair. He stopped right in the middle of the verse. How dare He stop in the middle of the verse? 
Well, in the first place, in the ancient manuscripts, there aren't any verses anyway. The Scriptures just go right on. Men divided the Old Testament, as we call it, and the New Testament into verses. They put in the commas and periods and exclamation points and all that. The Greek and Hebrew just goes on and on, and the translators had to figure out by the context where you should put a period or a paragraph or, or a verse, as they later made them into verses, you see. But he stopped right there, sort of in the middle of a thought, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, why did he stop there? Well, because that's what he was about to do. He was about to, of course, uh, have the Spirit of the Lord to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. Christ is not calling the rich of the world. Most of you can figure that out. We don't have too many millionaires here. God calls an occasional millionaire into the church, but He hasn't called any hundred millionaires or billionaires yet ever in this life as far as I know. But mostly they're just common people. And that was Christ's desire. The poor are more humble. They're more willing to learn, willing to look toward a future kingdom. And He preached the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, people that are really hurt and they're willing to listen and to preach deliverance to the captives. And he's doing that to people that are captives in sin and literally in jail and all that kind of thing, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And there he stopped and closed the book. So let's get back to the original. You'll notice from your reference, perhaps in your Bible, this is quoted from Isaiah 61. Turn back there, brethren, and now let's begin to understand duality. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty, opening the prison uh, to those bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So Christ fulfilled that part, part of it at least, not all of it. It's going to be continued later when He comes again, but during His human ministry. But he continues on in this verse, you know, the Scripture of the thought goes right on, and the day of vengeance. Oh, he left that part out. How come he left that part out? Well, because he wasn't doing, that's what he wasn't doing right there. He didn't proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That was to be 2,000 years later. That is today, the great tribulation and the day of the Lord. And the day of vengeance to our God to comfort all those who mourn, to console those who mourn, and lift their spirit of heaviness and so on. And verse 4, and they, notice how it goes on showing it's an end time prophecy, they shall rebuild the old ruins. They didn't do that during Christ's time, but they're going to do it when He comes again. We're going to rebuild all the Middle East, and we're going to rebuild many of the bombed out cities of, of, of America and Britain and so on. They shall raise the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. And but you shall be named, that is the Israelites, priests of the Lord. Men shall call you servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and so on. God will greatly bless the people that come back from the sword, that come back from the concentration camp, that would have been so humbled, they'll cry out to God, and then God will let their former captors become their captives and serve them for a while, as he says at the beginning of Isaiah 14. If you want to turn back to that, why not in my notes, I may get going here and run out of time, but you notice in Isaiah 13, he describes the fall of ancient Babylon, 
and uh, of course, uh, which he brought about, and how the ultimate king of Babylon was Satan the devil. But in chapter 14, he continues with the basic thought, Isaiah 14, verse 1, For the Eternal will have mercy on Jacob, when the final Babylon, that is, this whole United States of Europe, is utterly crushed by Christ at His coming. The Eternal will have mercy on Jacob, our peoples, the descendants of Israel, and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. Probably literally back in, in uh, the Middle Eastern land of Israel. I hate to call it Palestine. That's a Gentile name, really, for the land of Israel in the Middle East. And later, God says, we'll be too crowded in the land, and He will no doubt bring us right back to America, Canada, Australia, and give us back some of our former lands. But first we'll be brought back there. That is, some of my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and others, perhaps. And they will take them captive, whose captives they were, and they will rule over their oppressors at the beginning of the thousand years. And the oppressors will be mainly those nations and peoples part of the United States of Europe. The Germans and the Italians and others will be part of that system. And then when I preach that, sometimes people say, oh, you, you hate the Germans. No, I am partly German. <laughs> you know? And some of my ancestors were German. No, we're not hating anybody. We're just saying what God does. God uses one group of people to sometimes humble another in His purpose. He sets up kings. He brings down kings. And he uses people to do his will. He talks about Pharaoh, you know, who took Israel into Egypt. He said, my servant Pharaoh, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, my servant Cyrus. You read those things, as you know, in the Scriptures. He used those men. He wasn't calling them to understanding yet. It's not their fault. But he used them to punish Israel or to deal with Israel in various ways. He uses one group of men to teach other men lessons at times, and that's his purpose. So these things are very interesting when you begin to put them all together. Now, back in Isaiah 61, it shows that he is dealing with these people in that way, and it shows, of course, the duality of Christ's prophecy. So, at first, you have an end-time fulfillment and many of these early prophecies, you see, at first a fulfillment and then an end-time fulfillment. But, brethren, just digressing, not digressing, but I want you to also understand books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as you've heard me say, were written over 100 years after Israel's first captivity. And when they talk about, when Jeremiah speaks of, and Ezekiel speaks of, a coming captivity and slavery for Israel, or the book of Zechariah as well, one or two others, they have to be talking about an end-time attack, captivity, slavery, and regathering. Because it didn't happen way after their time. It happened over a hundred years before they were around. And God isn't saying, well, I'm going to bring about the civil... I mean, I don't get up and preach, well, brethren, God's going to bring about a civil war here in the United States. They say, you're nuts. Have you been asleep for 200 years? No, no, God doesn't do that. He's talking through these men about an end-time fulfillment only. You turn to Ezekiel 1, and you begin to see that pattern a little bit. 
Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 1 at this point then, brethren, and I think it's helpful to kind of review these principles. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, Ezekiel was written about 593 to 571. In other words, it was written well into the captivity of ancient Israel, and even ancient Judah was already being taken captive. It came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, or Kabur, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God, Ezekiel writes. By the word Ezekiel was a priest, he was a Levite, and the very word Ezekiel means God is strong. And over and over, he says, then they shall know that I am the ever-living one. All through that book, he said, I'm going to brand it in their brain that they know who I am. So on the fifth day, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priests. So God uses greyhounds to do what greyhounds do, and he pulls, uses bulldogs to do what bulldogs do. So generally, as his leading ministers, he has Jews or Levites or whatever. That's another story. But then he was a priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. And he describes the power of God, these wheels within a wheel, a literal throne, a portable throne, of whom? Frankly, the one who became Jesus Christ. This is talking about the God of the Old Testament and this portable throne. In chapter 2, he said, verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet. I'm going to send you. And verse 3, I'm sending you to the children of Israel. So he was among the captives of Judah, but he was being sent to a different people, the captives of Israel, the children of Israel. They're an impudent and stubborn people. But they'll finally learn that's a prophet among them. And so he says the same thing in verse 3. Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Now, the ten tribes rebelled against ancient Judah, and they said to your tents, O Israel, and the ten tribes became a separate people, and they separated for about 200 years until they were finally taken into slavery. But God sent Ezekiel and others to warn them, or at least he was to write this about them, and, uh, and uh, showed what was... To, well, actually, others were writing to them ahead of time, I'm sorry. But he tells what's going to happen to them through Ezekiel at the time of the end. So anyway, he says, they won't listen, they're hard-headed. And he said in verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So there again, it wasn't about their first captivity, but the second. Say that to the wicked, you shall surely die, and so on, and your iniquity. And then in chapter 4, he says, lay siege against Jerusalem, make a clay tablet, make a kind of a sandbox and pretend you're attacking Jerusalem lay siege against this make-believe Jerusalem, heap up mounds, set camps against it, set battering rams. This will be a sign to who? To the house of Israel. Not the Jews. They had rebelled by this time. All the world knew that. The Protestants don't seem to understand that. They think Israel means Jew and Jew means Israel. It does not. At this time, they'd been separated about 200 years. This will be a sign to the house of Israel that they're going to be besieged. Jerusalem was just a sign to them. It wasn't talking about Jerusalem being besieged directly at that time, but it was to be a sign to them. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel again on it. God knows the difference, the house of Israel. And then he said in verse 6, When you've completed them, lie again on your right side, and then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. 
So right here he spells out, there's the house of Israel and the house of Judah, two separate peoples. And this attack, mock attack, this make-believe attack on Jerusalem was to be a sign that Israel was going to be attacked and conquered. Then chapter 5, you son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor and uh, pass it over your head and your beard and take the balances of the hair and divide the hair and you shall burn one-third in the midst of the fire. You see, burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city, one-third of your hair. And when the days of the siege are finished, you'll take one-third and strike around it with a sword and one-third you'll scatter to the wind. What's this talking about? And then he says... You shall take a little group, apparently those who are watching and praying, the true Christians, and uh, bind them in the edge of your garment. But some of the true Christians get sassy and rebellious, probably even in the place of safety, frankly. I don't know how it's going to work, but God is, He allows people to turn aside, take some of them and throw them into the midst of the fire. Some of them will be put out of the camp, so to speak, and burn them in the fire For from there a fire will go forth where? To the Jews? No, to all the house of Israel. All, this time the Jews and the Israelites. You see, all the house of Israel. And then he says, Because of your disobedience, you have not walked in my statutes. Verse 7, I'm going to do in you what I've never done. And the like of which I will never do again. Verse 9, because of your abominations, our sins. And he talks about even cannibalism. And verse verse 12, One-third of you shall die of the pestilence. One-third of the house of Israel. Is that what was going to happen back then? No. They were already in captivity. He's talking about the time of the end. One-third of you shall die with pestilence and famine. One-third with the sword. And I will scatter another third to the winds. And he says over in verse uh, 6, Chapter 6, verse 6, And all your dwelling places, the city shall be laid waste, and the high places desolate. Did that happen when the Assyrians attacked ancient Israel? No, it did not. This is written long after that time. It did not happen then. You read in, I think it's first or second, uh, 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 well, I should have got that in my mind, Kings, I think it is, how it, they, they put the... Uh, uh, people in there, the king of Assyria uh, brought in these other people and made them, uh, uh, they became the Samaritans as Nebuchadnezzar attacked them. So uh, that's what happened. And uh, back in chapter 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6, and you read on and you find how ancient Israel had that very thing happen to them, uh, and that is ancient uh, Israel but that God then guided uh, the Assyrians to bring these other peoples in there. The cities were not uh, destroyed because he had them bring in these other mixed people and they became the Samaritans. So this did not happen back then at all. Hope I don't slip here. I'm going too too fast between one thing and the other. (laughs) Anyway, get back to Ezekiel here then, where we were. And he says, Your high places and your cities will be laid waste. They were not laid waste in the first captivity of Israel, but they're going to be again. And then he says over in chapter uh, uh, 6 and uh, verse 11, Thus says the eternal God, Pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, Alas, 
for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall, not they did 100 years before I wrote this, but they shall fall by the sword, famine, and pestilence. And in chapter 7, chapter 7, he says in verse 23, Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood. We've got horrible violence and crime. We've got these little children being butchered all over this. There have been 45 million little unborn babies built in our so-called Christian societies. We're going to look back later and we're going to realize what an abomination that is in the sight of Almighty God. This abortion that's going on right now as we speak. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles. They will possess their houses. Verse 26, disaster after disaster. You see, it's going to speed up as it gets toward the end. Disaster after disaster. And rumor will be upon them. Then they'll seek a vision from a prophet. And the law of the priest will perish from the priest. And the king will mourn and the prince will be clothed with desolation. And the hands of the common people tremble. I will do to them according to their way. Our crime, our violence, our sex orgies. Our men marrying men and women marrying women and taking God out of the public square and despising God's law and His His statutes. As it says back there in Leviticus 26, if you despise me, here's what I'm going to bring on you. I will do according to their way, according to what they deserve. I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the ever-living one. So God says this, and this was written, as you know, over a hundred years after Israel was already taken into captivity. And he's talking then, obviously, about a future captivity leading right up to Christ's coming where they will then really understand. They didn't understand before. They went off and disappeared. We saw the lost peoples of Israel. And today, our neighbors who may be Smiths or Jones or whatever their name is, and the Israelitish people, they don't know who they are. Back in the early years of Ambassador College... Before we had very many students, we had to bring in some uh, Nazarene girls. They were nice girls, too, very sweet, and I enjoyed flirting with them. I was still unmarried. <laughs> they were pretty, and we talked to them as they worked in the office, and for the big mailings, we'd bring five or six of these girls. And this one girl, I was kidding a lot and talking to her more because she was better looking, of course. And... Uh, and she would, some of them would kind of make fun of our literature. And they would, they would say, oh, you think you're Jews. I said, no, we're not Jews. We're Israelites and there's a difference. Well, you know, it's all the same. And they didn't understand. Finally, I asked her one day. I confronted her. I got to know her. And I said, Laurel, what is your last name? Once I got all that straight. She said, well, you know, Laurel Israelson. Oh, your name is Israelson. You are a son of Israel and you don't even know who you are. Israel stamped right on her name, Laurel Israel's son. She stopped and thought she never brought up that subject again. <laughs> yeah, we have the names of Israel all through our society, and people don't even know who they are. But these things are going to happen. But now, brethren, what about the earlier prophecies like Hosea and Amos and many others who were written long before the first captivity of Israel. Is that just talking about the first captivity? You hear us reading certain things into that. Some people say, well, that was for that back there, and how can you say that's for us today? So let's get to that part now. What about these earlier prophecies? I want to explain the highlights of Amos as we go through and how this duality is applied in the book of Amos. 
And we could go through uh, Hosea another time and many other of these books the same way. I just chose Amos because I had written it or read it or studied it a little bit more recently. I read all of them, but I just had to study through Amos more recently. So, first of all, let's start through uh, the book of Amos here, if you would. And uh, Amos chapter 1, uh, verse 1. The book of Amos. I'll get a little more of this tea here. The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Who's he talking about? Well, he says so. Not Judah. Not Judah. Israel. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Yes, he knew the difference. Judah had a king, but he is talking about Israel. And in the days of Jeroboam, Joash, son of Joash, king of Israel. Two years before the earthquake. And the commentaries mention this term earthquake is mentioned a number of times. There was a huge, massive earthquake apparently at some point back there that's referred to for many years later. Now, this book was written, most commentaries say, between 760 and 750. Uh, one commentary says 751. That's just a generalization. But what would that be if it was 751? That would be exactly 30 years before ancient Israel's first captivity. Remember, they went into slavery 721 to 718 B.C. So this would have been 30 years before that. Could have been 40 years before if it was written in 761. We don't know the exact date, but he describes the dates of these kings, and they're pretty well nailed down, and the things he refers to show he must have written at that time. Then, without going on with that, he does describe first certain things about neighboring nations, Mr. Herbert Armstrong often said that God deals with other nations nearly always as they come in contact with Israel. And these were nations that were neighboring nations, and that's why he talks about them. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of fire, they apparent, of iron. They apparently really were cruel when they attacked Gilead, which is part of Israel. So he deals with them. And then verse 6, For three transgressions of Gaza, because they took captive the whole captivity. So apparently they were very cruel as well. And he talks about them. Verse 9, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four. And again talks about what they did and Ammon and so on. And Moab in chapter 2. Then he begins to get to Judah in chapter 2, verse 4. For three transgressions of Judah, the neighboring land of Israel, they were cousins, of course, and they were intermarried sometime before the split. And for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they despised the law of the ever-living one. And that's what we're doing today. We despise God's law and try to get God out of the public square in every way we can, and have not kept His commandments. Their lies lead them astray lies after which their fathers walked, and I will send a fire upon Judah, and I will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Did he do that? Uh, Yes, this was written, you know, maybe 750, 760 B.C. He didn't do that till over a hundred years later, but he did do it in 604 to 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and burned the palace and took over Judah. Then he gets to Israel, the house of Israel. Verse 6, Thus says the Eternal, for three transgressions of Israel, 
He's already talked about Judah. Now he talks about our people and what happened then, but also what's going to happen today in type. And for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Now, we don't do that directly today, but we do obviously often sell, and many of our people in this country are beginning to get into the slave trade and sex trade, and they will grab young women. And even in the, in the Los Angeles Times years ago, while I still lived there, must have been at least 20 years ago, they showed how literally thousands of young women, they had a whole investigative report on that, would come out from Missouri, where I grew up, or Kansas, young girls looking for excitement, hoping to get a job in Hollywood, and they'd show up at the big Greyhound bus station, which I used to go to occasionally down in the center of L.A., and they'd disappear. Their parents would never hear from them again. Some man would kind of lure them outside and say, well, I've got a job for you or this or that, and then maybe hit them on the back of the head or drug them or something and rape them and beat them. And after they'd been literally raped and beaten and brutalized, they'd feel like an animal, scared to death. He'd put a knife to their throat, maybe bring blood. Then he'd force them into prostitution. And they had investigated, and they found many girls forced into prostitution, not because the girls were sex maniacs, but because of these men who wanted their money from these women. And that's happened all over the world. A lot of you know how they have literally tens or hundreds of thousands of sex slaves all over the world today. So this does happen here, but not perhaps as much as it did proportionally at that time. A man and his father should go into the same girl to defile my holy name. Yes, we've got men with men and women with women and incest, just like this is talking about, and everything else. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them. I brought them out of ancient, you know, Egypt and slavery. But you've turned aside from me, he says. You're weighed down, verse 13. I'm weighed down by you as a cart is weighed down full of sheaves. Weighed down by your sins. And then you're going to be scared to death when I begin to deal with you. And the most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that night. Verse 16, chapter 3. Hear this word that the Eternal has spoken against you, O children of Israel. So he's talking about Israel, not the Jews. But he does say here, children of Israel. And here he does enlarge it. I need to be not get in such a big hurry. He says the whole family. So now he is including the Jews. Israel and the Jews. The whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Yes, you've got to agree with God. If a trumpet is blown in the city, verse 6, will not a people be afraid if there's a calamity? Will the eternal have not done it? Isn't God in charge? He either did it or allowed it to happen. Surely the eternal God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. And brethren, somewhere on the earth at the time of the end, there's going to be a true church, and we will understand certainly all the major events that are going to happen, and others will not understand. And you have to understand that. What about these people that leave us and go off and start their own thing? You figure it out. Is God going to use them? If the sign comes out and a message from God, it's time to flee. Is He going to allow those to flee who have been rebellious against His own church, which is doing His work? Or will they know when to flee, how to flee, where to go? Frankly, they won't if they've turned aside from God. But you have to figure that out yourself. Surely the eternal God will do nothing unless His true servants understand. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The eternal God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? 
He's saying here, Amos says, I've got to preach. God's put it on my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm bound to do this. Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod in the land of Egypt. Assemble on the mountains of Israel. See great tumults in her midst, for they know not how to do right. In other words, he's going to stir up these people. And then he says in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. And, of course, that's Israel. That in that day I will punish Israel for their transgressions. And I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. You say, well, we don't have Bethel. But, brethren, Bethel back there, as all the commentaries and histories of that time, was one of the main high places of pagan worship. So he's talking about places of worship in Israel. And the type today would be there for us. You go on to London and all over you see these idols in their Church of England, and you see all over the Catholic, over the, the Catholic churches in Britain and America are often the biggest and fanciest, and they're here in our land too. It isn't just Italians or Spain, Spanish that go there. It's millions of Israelites go there, and they have these idols all over the place. So God knows. He says in verse chapter 4, verse 1, Hear this word, you cows... Now, Moffat translated fatted cows of women, uh, you, you, you plump women of high Samaria. He's talking about the women, the spoiled women, society women of modern America and Britain who oppress the poor. I know we don't like to say this, but who, who are the ones often who have actually hurt the people so terribly, even here in North Carolina and Kentucky? Maybe the rich wives and their great society salons and their women's clubs and so forth of the cigarette manufacturers and distributors who gained millions and hundreds of millions of dollars even after it was reported openly that cigarettes would kill prematurely. And they know that. They kept right on. And they're very, very wealthy. They're the pillars of some of the biggest Baptist and Church of Christ in this whole area in North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky, and so on. It's a principle here. It's happened here. I like President Bush, and I think he's better than the guy who came before. But he was an oil man, and certainly Cheney, you know, was head of Halliburton and was a heavy oil man. And all the time the liberals are trying to nail them because of their oil connections. Now, I don't like the liberals either. But none of them are righteous, and we've got to figure that out. <laughs> none of them are righteous, and they do have an oil connection. And part of the reason some of our American boys are being slaughtered in Iraq is because of that. It is because of that. We didn't attack other people around the world who are in slavery. They're all over the place, but they didn't have oil. They did not have oil. So you start thinking, God knows that these rich women and some of these big shots are partly rich because their husbands were doing bad things and they probably knew it and were participating in it. Who crush the needy, who say to your husband, bring wine, let's have a big cocktail party. The Eternal has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks. Why did He use that? The histories indicate that the ancient Assyrians literally put fish hooks in the noses of their slaves or their lips. And sometimes they, you, you have a fish hook embedded in your lips and you try to get away, it'll tear your mouth to shreds. And that is what they did. And it was the ancient Assyrians who took Israel into slavery and your posterity with fish hooks. So that happened then. 
and things like that similar will happen today. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning, verse 4, in the middle, and your tithes every three years, the year of all three tithes, first, second, and third. He commands them. He says in verse 6, here's something that applies to us today, brethren. Some of you may have thought, well, why do I refer to that or Mr. Ames or whatever on the telecast? It does refer to us because in type, this whole book refers to us. Verse 6, also I gave you, he's writing to who? Not to the Jews, to Israel. And in type, he's writing to modern Israel. I gave you cleanness of teeth. Not because you're brushing your teeth so hard, (laughs) but you have no food. I gave you cleanness of teeth and lack of bread. The price of wheat is skyrocketing today. Right now, today, and corn, because they're using corn for ethanol. And the grain prices are going to keep going up, apparently. And there's going to be a shortage before too long. Right here, not somewhere else. Yet you've not returned to me. You're getting a horrible drought in vast portions of the United States, and they still have not returned to God. I know you hear about an occasional Baptist or independent preacher out in the country, and he has his congregation praying, and sometimes the news people will zero in and kind of, well, these poor country people are praying, and they don't ha-ha-ha out loud, but you can sort of sense it in the way they portray it. You know, they're, they're kind of amused that these country people turn to God. Well, more of these country people are going to turn to God before the end. And if we do our work powerfully, if they're really sincere, some of them will turn to the true God and they will begin to obey God and join our churches too. Don't think they won't. We'll have a vast number of people beginning to come in later on when these things start happening big time. People do want to save their hides and they will be willing to listen more than they are now. I withheld rain from you. Is he doing that right here, right now? When you, there were still three months to harvest. Notice, I made it rain on one city back in Finley, Ohio, and a whole area there, the worst rains in about 100 years, and flooding and flooding and flooding. And I withheld rain from another city. Charlotte, Asheville, Columbia, South Carolina, other areas in the southeast are hit a lot worse than we are. And they're having mandatory water rationing and have for weeks in some of those cities. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So I, so two or three sitters wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. No, there's not enough to go around quite often. Yet you have not returned to me. Because you see, God has made a, rid- a ridicule. God has put way off. Well, no, Christopher Hitchens writes, uh, you know, uh, God is not great. And Richard Dawkins, this big shot... Oxford professor talks about the God delusion. And they're trying to say there is no God and once you're really educated, you can figure that out. God is going to take their face just like the big boys in my gang used to do my face. So I'm not against them. I'm just saying it's good for us sometimes. If I smarted off, the big boys would literally take my face and push it right down in the snow or right down in the mud and I'd run home crying to Mama. And when I got bigger, I learned to get tougher and tougher because I lived in kind of a neighborhood we had a lot of that. So then I learned to whip nearly all the guys my own size. And I was pretty good shape up until about age 16 because I was, you know, bigger than normal and, and stronger because I was always, my dad bought me a fast bag, you know, one of the fast ones you go like that, taught me how to box. But age 16, the other guys kept on growing and I stopped. Bad news. (laughs) Then some of the football players did get bigger than me, but I could still win the 
welterweight championship, but not the heavyweight championship because <laughs> they kept getting bigger. But they pushed my face right down the mud. Did I ever do a terrible thing like that? You better believe I did. You know, we, we did it to each other in my gang. <laughs> and new boy moved in the neighborhood and you try him out, you know. But God is going to put their face right down in the mud. And Professor, you know, Dawkins and some of these other guys are going to be so humbled, they're going to be willing to listen sometime, whether it's now or in the great white throne judgment. Now, I don't hate them. I don't even know what they look like. And they'll no doubt have a higher IQ than any of us in this room. Smart. But God has not yet called the Einsteins or the Bernsteins or the other Steins or <laughs> the brilliant Jews or the brilliant uh, Englishmen like Churchill. He calls the weak of the world rich in faith. He's going to do this, brethren. That's the point. I blasted you, verse 9, with blight and mildew. Blight meaning lack of rain and mildew meaning too much rain. Part of your nation gets floods, and part of the nation gets blight, and then you get other scriptures say fires. The fires are raging, and we're having about 400 fires raging all over the western part of the United States. And we've had fires raging right down here in Florida, too, you know, several weeks ago. Vast areas are being burned up, and it's going to get much worse. Not, not better, it will get worse. Am I saying it's going to get worse every single year consistently? No. Just like the stock market or like the Lakers uh, basketball team, you have better, some kind of goes like this. But the general direction is up. When you're climbing Mount Whitney, you don't go straight up or you'd fall back down unless you had ropes or something. It's kind of like this. You go around, the general direction is keep up and up and up. But sometimes it'd be a big rock and the trail will go down a little bit under that rock as you go around the corner, then back up again. So there will be ups and downs, but the general direction is going to be worse and worse, unless what? Unless our people come to a genuine, heartfelt repentance such as they have never done in modern times. I'd like to see them do that. And we're going to preach to them with all their hearts and try to help them do that. And many will. But unfortunately, the prophecy indicates that most will not. The locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Eternal. Verse 9, I have sent among you plague. What's plague? Well, disease epidemics. That hasn't happened yet, but it will after the manner of Egypt. Then your young men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. Thousands of our young men are beginning to perish off in Afghanistan and Iraq, but far, far more will later. That's just the very beginning. Verse 11, I overthrow some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Were Sodom and Gomorrah nice, good folks? Did God approve of their homosexuality? <laughs> what is God's opinion of homosexuality? Read about it back in Genesis, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 12, Therefore thus will I do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So that's the message for you and me. We who understand have got to do that and try to preach this message while we have the opportunity. Chapter 5, Hear this word which I take up against you, this lamentation, whole, the house of Judah, no, O house of Israel. 
And all through the Old Testament, you read about the house of Israel and over here the house of Judah, two separate peoples that had wars against each other off and on for about 200 years. The virgin of Israel has fallen, will rise no more. She's forsaken. God's going to bring her down. Verse 3, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. Nine-tenths destroyed. That's awful. But that's what's going to happen. And God indicates that elsewhere about our coming punishment and slavery. That which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Thus says the Eternal to the house of Israel, verse 4, Seek me and live. Yes, that's what we've got to learn to do individually. Those of us who understand, seek God. Study this Word. Pray fervently to the God of Abraham. Worship God or, or adore God. Obey the first commandment with all your heart, as we heard. Worship the great God who gives you life and breath. Do not seek Bethel. Why does he mention Bethel? Again, that was one of the leading places of paganism. Nor enter Gilgal or these other places where they had the big statues. Seek the eternal and live, verse 6, lest he break out like a fire. To who? To the house of Joseph. Oh, it's pretty specific now, isn't it? Not just Judah, not just Israel, but us. The peoples of Ephraim and Manasseh to the house of Joseph. Why us specifically more often? Because we are the ones who have been given the greater blessings and we are the ones that God is going to pour out the greater plagues upon. It's been our responsibility to preserve the Bible in a sense and get the Bible out at least to the world and the message and to have the physical blessings. We're the ones that have had the great churches and the great hospitals and doctors and teachers and money and ships. When the people of India were starving, who sent the 600 ships? 600 ships full of grain. We did. The United States of America. We've been a very blessed people and we've been blessing to others too in many ways physically. But we're turning more and more away from God. I'll break out like a fire to the house of Israel and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel in our places of worship. They notice verse 10. They, these modern people of Joseph here in America and Britain, they shall hate the one who rebukes in the gate. Who's that guy? Me <laughs> and Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and Mr. Wally Smith and Mr. Rod King on the telecast and all the rest of our ministers, the preachers who rebuke in the gate. They abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Oh, they hate that kind of preaching. He says in verse 12, For I know your manifold transgressions, your mighty sins. You afflict the just and take bribes. Do we ever hear of any government corruption? Of course we have no government corruption here. We all know that. <laughs> Every day almost. This official or that official is caught doing that, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I'm sure all of you understand that. God looks down and He sees that all through our society and our so-called Christian nation. You divert the poor from the justice at the gate. The Republicans often talk about the liberal, the Democrats' liberal, pan, plan, or, uh, liberal plantation for the blacks. They often uh, promise the black people that give, they give them all this money. They think that's going to do them good, you know, but a lot of the really intelligent black uh, uh, editorial writers say, though that's not good. That imprisons people and not getting their education, and not getting out and learning and growing and developing themselves, as many of our black brethren have done, and so they call it the, the liberal plantation, taking advantage of them. 
Why do they do that? Because they love them. They want their vote. They say, let's have uh, the public schools, the public schools, Kennedy and all the rich guys, the Rockefellers and the Kennedys. Isn't that wonderful? What did they always, always, always do with their kids? They always sent them to a private school. You see, they're hypocrites. So, no, we need to have raise the standards of everybody, but be honest about what's going on. So they divert the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it's an evil time. Those who are thoughtful have to be very careful what they say. And I got on a roll and was starting to say certain things the other day, and we decided, I uh, guess, uh, Mr. Pyle and, uh, and Mr. Uh, uh, Bomer and others there at the television were, I forget what it was, but I had to divert away from some things so we wouldn't get kicked off of WGN. We've got to be careful how we say what we say about homosexuality or about abortion or whatever because we're getting into that time where it's going to be difficult to say very much of the truth without being shut down. Keep your place in in, uh, Amos, but turn to uh, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, verse 14. God is talking again about our people He says, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, yet you have not returned to me. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. And because I will do this to you... No, I'm sorry, I'm going back here to Amos. I don't know what got in hurrying here too much. Let's go back to Isaiah. uh, Isaiah 59. I was looking at the wrong uh, marker. Isaiah 59, verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails. You see, truth has fallen in the street. People are not willing to have truth around. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. If you depart from evil, and the world knows that you condemn homosexuality, that you condemn abortion, that you condemn the sins of this nation, they're going to increasingly hate you. And hate us. Then the ever-living one saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, no man willing to stand up for this. And wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, he, his own arm brought salvation for him. Goes on to show how he's going to come and send Christ back to this earth. The ultimate deliverance will not come from us or from our work. I can't save you. Jesus Christ can. But he will if we give our lives to Him. So that's a reference there we can think about and understand uh, what's going on. Now let's go on as we were here uh, back, I think, in chapter 5, verse... uh, in the house of Israel. And uh, he says over here in verse uh, chapter 5 and verse 15... Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the eternal of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So again, he's talking, you know, about the last generation, the very end of our peoples at the end of this age. Then he says in chapter 6, kind of getting through the book of Amos here, this the highlights of some of these things that do apply to us. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. What's Samaria? Well, the capital of Israel. The capital of Israel, the house of Israel at that time. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. 
So they take it easy, the big shots in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And so he says, Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who says, Oh, everything's fine, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, who caused the seed of violence to come near, because you lead the people in the wrong way, of con- uh, and so on. Verse 6, who drank wine from bowls, great big cocktail parties and oversized cocktails, and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, the modern British and American peoples. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. These big-shot leaders are going to be among the first taken into captivity, God says. The eternal God has sworn by Himself, the Lord of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob, the vanity of our people, and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So God is going to intervene and humble us. He says in chapter 7, Thus says the eternal God showed me, Behold, he formed the locusts, swarms at the beginning of the late crop. You turn to Joel 2 and verse 25, and you see Joel overlapped Amos. And there was apparently a terrible locust plague back at that time. And as you read Joel, I don't have time to go through that reference today, but the indication is there will also be that same kind of thing at the time of the end, some kind of vast insect plague and maybe literally a locust plague to eat our crops. Kind of interesting. Verse 8, the eternal said, Amos, what do you see? He said, I see a plumb line. What is he doing? He's measuring Israel, and they're found guilty in a sense. Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam, who was their wicked king at one time. So he goes on to describe the punishment coming upon our people. Chapter 8, Thus says the eternal God, He showed me a basket of summer fruit. And as you read it carefully, of course, they were ripe. Israel is ripe for destruction, like a basket of summer fruit waiting to rot. And the end has come upon my people, he says here in verse 2. And he says in verse 3, They will say, When will the new moon pass that we shall sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade our wheat? They're not interested in obeying God. They want to leave that stuff out. He says in verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the eternal God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a famine of water, but of hearing the words of the eternal. And at some point, not now, not in the next few years, but later, God may literally shut us down and the world will not be able to hear the truth, but somehow the words of Mr. Armstrong and the words of Mr. Ames or me or others will ring in their ears. We used to hear this. What happened to these preachers? They'll get scared as they see the things getting ready to happen. But it's going to be a famine, not of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the eternal, but shall not find it. And the young virgins and young men will faint from thirst, it says, in that day. In chapter 9, I saw the ever-living one standing by the altar, And he said, Strike the doorpost, slay the last of them. And he says in verse 2, Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb to heaven, they think they're going to escape by running somewhere else. 
From there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, the top of a high mountain, from there I will search and take them, though they hide from my seat at the bottom of the sea. From there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. My brethren, if you read Leviticus 26, the whole chapter, and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter, you realize that God describes in detail these things. He said, even in captivity, our people, some of them, will have been so beaten and raped and humbled and slapped and kicked and cursed that when they see hear the sound of boots coming toward them, they're probably going to vomit. They're going to start shaking in fear because they know there may be rubber truncheons or metal clubs, and they've been beaten so much they're terrorized. And it's going to be that kind of thing. I'm sorry, but this is real. And we need to understand what's going to happen. And God says, you're not going to escape. God is going to bring it on those who will not repent. So we have to be real and get real with God and try to find out where is He? Where is His full truth being preached? Where is His work being done? And try to get with it with all of our hearts. Does that mean we're all perfect here? No, I need to get with it more than I have been. Each one of us needs to get closer to God. Every one of us. Behold, the eyes of the eternal are on the sinful kingdom. Verse 8, I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So he was going to destroy that kingdom, but eventually bring them back. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among the nations. He shifted our people over through the Middle East. He's brought them through Eastern Europe and down the Danube River and the Dan and Don and all these things. The, the, the sons of Dan, the nation of Dan, the tribe of Dan, left their father's name everywhere, you know. And he brought them across Europe. And he brought them to the, to the British Isles and from Holland and Western nations and then British Isles primarily hundreds of thousands and tens of, uh, tens of millions came over here over time and established Manasseh and over to Canada and then out to Australia and New Zealand and South Africa. He sifted us as a grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Eventually God will guide the nations and they will know who they are and He will cause circumstances to come to bring His people back. All the sinners of my people shall die with the sword, though. He's going to humble them first, who say, The calamity shall not overtake us. Oh, no, it's not going to happen, he'll say, nor confront us. On that day, when he finally returns, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. So he's going to raise up the throne of David, and the kingdom of God will be restored on the earth. For it's fallen down, and they shall possess the remnant of Edom, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Eternal, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the mountain shall rip with sweet wine. He's going to bless the whole earth with abundant crops. And I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. He's never done that yet. Ancient Israel went off into slavery, never came back. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, plant vineyards, drink wine, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I've given them, says the Eternal, your God. Turn back to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, I mean, brethren. Let's turn to Ezekiel at this point, if you would, uh, verse 30, or chapter 39. 
This book was written over 100 years after ancient Israel's captivity. And he shows here what's going to happen, of course. And he says, beginning in verse 25, Therefore says the eternal God, Now I will bring back, he described the captivity, verses 21 to 23, But I'll bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, Israel and Judah and everyone. And I will be jealous for my holy name. When? After they have borne their shame. After we have gone into the great tribulation and all their unfaithfulness and which they were unfaithful to me. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' land and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations. Some people say that's the Jews being brought back in 1948. That is ridiculous. The nations all around Judah hate Judah, attack them and attack them and attack them continually, want to destroy them. That did not happen in 1948. But the nations all around will know then. Then they shall know that I am the ever-living one who sent them into captivity. They'll know who God is among the nations and also brought them back. Some of my children or grandchildren may have to be brought back from captivity if they're unfaithful to God. And some of your kids and relatives, I know that. They'll be brought back and left none of them captive anymore. And I will not hide my face from them anymore. When God brings us back, and some of our grandchildren or nieces or nephews or whoever, people we love all around, people that have turned aside, relatives and friends, neighbors, He says, I will not hide my face anymore, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, says the Eternal God. Then he goes into the description of the holy city here on the earth and the temple of God and so on and uh, chapters 40 through 48. So anyway, this is the end. This is what happens to us. And he says, Then shall they know that I am the eternal over and over again. So brethren, we need to know that. And we need to know that these scriptures in Amos where he talks about rain on one city and no rain on another, and all these specific things. If you read the chapters carefully throughout Amos, throughout Hosea, and Obadiah, and Micah, and these others, you can see clearly that they have a dual application. They apply to us today in America and Britain, and they are happening now. So let us watch and pray always that we may be counted worthy to escape all these things that might come to pass, no, that shall come to pass. Let's pray that we may be counted worthy to escape and stand in God's kingdom and fulfill the purpose for which we're created and the purpose for which we've been called out of this world.